Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm Dave Noyce. I'm an editor at the Tribune. I'm here with religion writer Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hi again, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Well, yesterday you wrote about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints unveiling something it hasn't done in nearly a century. It released the first book of a newly authorized four-volume series on the faith's history. Here to discuss it is Benjamin Park, who is Mormon and a history professor at Sam Houston State University. Ben, glad to have you with us. It's an honor to be here. Okay, Ben, to be clear, you weren't a consultant or a contributor for this book, is that correct? Nope, just an onlooker. Okay, but an expert onlooker. So give us your first impression of Saints. You've read it. Right, well, I've read the first part. The, 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 only the first part was released before yesterday, and then everything else was released. Um, uh, I, I think the release date was officially uh, on Tuesday. Um, but reading through, the first thing that struck me was just how readable it was. I mean, as, as a historian who spends most of my days and nights reading history books, you kind of get used to dry and uh, boring, <laughs> at least a, an average reader, uh, text, and, and you jump into this new Saints volume, and, and the first thing that, that hits you is, my goodness, this is written for people who usually aren't going to read the types of books that get me excited. Did, so, you, did you know about that volcano in uh, Indonesia? Indonesia? <laughs> I'd, I'd heard about it, but I'd never seen it made a central player in the Mormon narrative. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty interesting, huh? Yeah, I thought it was a very gripping opening. I mean, it's a great example of, of uh, I mean, it's a grabber. They know what's going to uh, capture people's attention, and they run with it. So this may be a little early to say, since you're still uh, consuming it all, too, but uh, that's your first impression. Any other later impressions? Sure. I was just uh, amazed at how um, narrative-driven the book was, that it, uh, everything is, is written in a way that's going to engage people who otherwise aren't going to be reading history texts. So it does this, this careful balance of both introducing uh, what had previously been controversial or disputed topics, while also framing it in a very both faithful and engaging way. So I, I, I think the the book ushers in a new era of history that is both um, receptive of most recent generations of scholarship, but also engaging of reaching out to readers that had previously been overlooked by most, most Mormon historians. So... Uh, by the church's own admission and, and everyone who has said, the audience really is Mormon them, Mormons themselves, especially young Mormons who, who may not be very familiar with the faith's history. Along that line, so they, they did something that I would guess as a professional historian you wouldn't do and we as journalists wouldn't do, uh, using first names. Joseph, yeah. Emma, Brigham, most, uh, most Mormon readers will be familiar with those, but uh, I got stopped by uh, things like William repeatedly, meaning W.W. <laughs> Phelps, who wrote the Mormon hymn, The Spirit of God Like a Fire is Burning. What do you think the overall impact of using first names rather than last names? Well, I, 
to explain that, I'll, I'll share an anecdote that I've heard from some friends who work on the, the Joseph Smith, Smith Papers Project, also housed in the same department that produced these volumes, in that when they first released their first volume of these Joseph Smith Papers Projects, which is a documentary editing history meant primarily for scholars um, that takes a very uh, rigorous look at, at the founding decades of the church, some of their first reports back from both general authorities and from common leaders was, why are you referring to Joseph Smith as J.S. or Smith? That's so cold. That's so <laughs> dispassionate. We, we like to refer to Joseph as Brother Joseph. And, and I think that kind of gets into most of the histories that an average Latter-day Saint would be familiar with and most importantly comfortable with are almost familial histories, right? They're written within a context where we are all brothers and sisters of the gospel who uh, we love and we trust one another. And so I think that this history demonstrate that, demonstrates that anxiety to where it's framed that these are lovable figures to most Latter-day Saints. And the best way to address those lovable figures and make you feel comfortable with them is to do things like call them by their first name. Oh, interesting. So, uh, as Dave said, I did write a story about this for today's paper. And Patrick Mason, I'm sure you know, scholar at Claremont um, Graduate University, described this first volume as the Joseph and God show. What do, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I... What did you think about that <laughs> assessment? I think that's very fair. It, it also struck me that um, the church history department, just like the church writ large, has been emphasizing moving away from our insular, parochial, American-centric story and becoming more international, focusing more on the grassroots, trying to emphasize we're not a top-down structure. And, and you see this in a lot of recent projects that the church history department has launched with like the Relief Society uh, Minute Books and other things, So where it's kind of a bottom-up history. We want to understand what the common Latter-day Saint was. And then you get to this book and, oh my goodness, there's so much Joseph Smith, right? It's framed around Joseph Smith. Right. And of course, you get lots of other casting characters. But I think it emphasizes that as much as the church is becoming more international, democratic, uh, egalitarian in some measures, this book and our, and our faith's most important narratives still center around the prophet Joseph Smith as, as someone who's supposed to hold everything else together. Well, that would also help propel a narrative, too. If you're writing a narrative, you may want to focus on a central character, like a, a Dickensian novel may, may write about, right. you know, Oliver Twist, but they're going to introduce tons of other characters, you right. know, Fagan right. and Bill Sykes, exactly. like they'll come in and out. It, it, it propels the narrative, correct? Absolutely. But there's still a question of, like, if you're going to choose a character to drive a narrative, it's significant that they choose Joseph Smith to drive the narrative and not, say, Emma Smith or, you know, someone else who joins the church in the first few years and viewing everything through their eyes. This is still a, a, a Joseph Smith-focused uh, story, and we'll see if that's going to continue in later volumes where there's a lot more cast of characters uh, spanning geographic regions, and, and uh, if they're still going to, you know, see everything through the priesthood leader's eyes. So I, I, I read a section of the story of the Latter-day Saints by uh, Jim Allen and Glenn Leonard. Are you familiar with that book? Yes. And then, and it was a section that became controversial. It was about the um, the church's word of wisdom or its health code. And they, 
those authors put it in the context of the temperance movement of the times. Lots of people were were talking about alcohol, tobacco, even vegetarianism, etc. And then I compared it to the saints' description of the same episode. And very, uh, the early book, Story of the Latter-day Saints, those authors put it in the context of the times, still quite affirming of the LDS Church, but no mention of God in it. It's simply this mm-hmm. this happened. Whereas in the saints, it, it goes to the very familiar story about Emma not liking the tobacco and and Joseph taking it in prayer to God. And that, that struck me as so stark because it it clearly exemplified something different is going on with saints than with story of the Latter-day Saints, the previous volume being produced by faithful church historians who were working for the church at the time, but still with a, a look to professional historians in their view. And and then saints clearly, you know, Joseph is talking to God right there. I, I think you picked up on a, on a wonderful comparison there. And I'm so glad you brought up Story of the Latter-day Saints written by historians in the 1970s under the leadership of the church historian. It's kind of a similar project of what this was supposed to be. I think it's important to note that while this is the first multi-volume History of the Latter-day Saints produced by the church historian's office in a century, it was it's not the only attempt in those years, as there were several other attempts. And Story of the Latter-day Saints was one part of a much larger attempt for a multi-volume uh, history of the faith. And yeah, you pointed out that these previous attempts, like the story of the Latter-day Saints, were still written primarily for people who would read typical history books. Now, story of the Latter-day Saints is a bit more engaging than a typical academic monograph. It would not be the type of book that's published by the university press, but it's still written by academic historians who are used to the discourse of, of academic historiography. Um, they're also trying to write in a very humanistic vein to where we want to make sure people outside the faith will both respect and read this text. And as a result, they wrote a book that I still think is one of perhaps the two best uh, overviews of the Mormon faith from the beginning to the the present with Matt Bowman's book, but a book that was uh, not accepted within church leadership. It caused a lot of problems within uh, the church historians department, eventually leading to the closure of the Leonard Arrington so-called Camelot and moving down to Brigham Young University. This book, Saints, reflects a very different approach. Uh, this is built on, on a very different type of foundation, whereas the 1970s, the, the Arrington Camelot years, there was a bit of a, a, a distance between what was going on in the historians department and what's going on in the church leadership. And a lot of church leaders might have been surprised with the material that was published and things like Story of the Latter-day Saints, with the current church historical department, they have a lot more interrelations with the church leadership. These, This book, the Saints book, went through extensive review processes, as far as I understand it. And, and so nothing that's being produced is going to be a surprise 
And as a result, we're, I, I would be very surprised if there is a, a similar type of backlash. And part of that relationship is I think they, the author of, the, of, the, of this book said, we're not trying to convince those outside the, the faith of this story. This book is not written for them. We'll have other things that are written for them, but this book is not. Nor is this book written for Latter-day Saints who are well-read in history and might be struggling with some of the uh, historical issues. I don't think this book is meant to reach them either. This book is meant to reach those who attend a sacrament meeting, attend Sunday school, and that's their real only exposure to church narrative. This is a new volume that might expand it a little more, and in best case scenario, might excite them to maybe pick up another book. And I think that's where the gospel, the history topics essays go along with it. Because along with this Saints volume, you have a series of, of essays that are found both at the website as well as in the in the um, the tools app that you can download on your phone, where you can also read the Saints volume for free. These series of essays that are like, okay, you want more information on the Word of Wisdom and the Health Code uh, of Antebellum America? Here's an essay that says much of what the same thing as Story of the Latter-day Saints is. It's just not reflected as much in the main text itself. So you refer to the essays, and we refer to that in our story, and, and I, this is a, certainly a much more expanded version of trying to put all those, the history of the church in a context, too. Will parts of the book, though, shock or even shake up some Latter-day Saints? Obviously, maybe not the essay readers, but we know many members of the church have, don't even know the essays exist, let alone have read them. It's a good question. Um, I assume so, uh, mostly because I'm often shocked by what members get shocked about. Um, <laughs> like when the when the Gospel Topics essay came out a few years ago about polygamy, uh, and there were some faithful Latter-day Saints who said, I never knew Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. That was surprising to me. Um, and so I imagine there's going to be Latter-day Saints who feel that, especially since this is a, a book that's going to be translated in multiple languages across the globe. Um, I imagine there's lots of Latter-day Saints who have just not read any history outside of, say, the chapter headings of the Doctrine and Covenants. So, yeah, I think there will be uh, some surprises uh, to an average Latter-day Saint reader. So uh, you were shocked, in other words, first that they didn't know Joseph Smith practiced polygamy and why they were shocked that he did, correct? Correct, yes. I, I just, <laughs> Given I that just Brigham Young did, one, and it was obviously part of the yeah. theology at some point. Right, and one of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants includes God telling Joseph Smith to practice polygamy. <laughs> did anything in the book shock you or startle you, or were you just surprised to even see it there? Um, not necessarily, but only because I, I think I've been more plugged in than, than most people in following recent developments in church history. So, say, six years ago, I would have been very surprised that this book contains uh, the seer stones, and it explicitly says that Joseph Smith used the seer stones to translate the Book of Mormon. That would have shocked me six years ago that the official church history says that. However, in the intervening years, they redid the Harmony Restoration site uh, out in Pennsylvania, the home that Joseph and Emma lived when he translated the Book of Mormon, and they have a hat and a seer stone there. So I think there's been development. So people who have been paying attention to the church history department, I think they, they, there won't be anything new, but I imagine that those who do pay attention to that are over-specialized nerds like myself who uh, <laughs> are not the primary target of this book. 
So are, are there passages, and maybe you haven't come across any yet, that given the historical record and what's now reported, are critical of early church leaders or the early church? I have not come to those yet, um, nor do I fully expect those to be. I, I don't think that's, that's definitely not the tone of the first part of the book, and the first part is the first eight chapters. Um, there's definitely some confessions of, of shortcomings. It talks about Joseph Smith struggling to do the right thing in his early years. It talks about um, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. struggling to make a living and not being able to uh, provide for his family, um, things like that. But actually critical of church leaders, I, I haven't seen anything like that yet. I've been told that uh, something that might be unsettling to some Mormon readers it, who don't know really about Joseph Smith and polygamy is the is the inclusion of the Emily and Eliza Partridge sisters first mar- first being sealed to Joseph in a private ceremony where Emma didn't know about it and then later sealed again with her presence and there's no commentary on it sort of factually stated but uh, i've been told that 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 might be troubling to some mormon readers but again approved at the highest levels for somebody thought that was okay to include right i i think you're right that's i think the nauvoo polygamy section is probably going to be crucial to this how members are going to, the degree to which members are going to be surprised, the Partridge sisters, because that's probably the first time that Latter-day Saints, even if they knew Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, this might be the first time they're exposed to Emma Smith did not know about all the polygamy (laughs) feelings. Um, And and I imagine that's going to be a bit jarring, but because it's gone through this extensive review process, because there's a lot more buy-in on this volume at the leadership levels of the church, um, it's going to be a lot harder to um, dismiss. So, for instance, with the gospel topic essays, um, they're great. They, they're very responsible in some degrees. They, they provide a lot of great information. They didn't get a lot of press attention from the church. They didn't get emails um, announcing their release nor were they ever mentioned in a general conference. Whereas conversely, in the 20 minutes that I've been on the phone with you, I just glanced at my email and I got another email from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints talking about saints. Um, th- this is something to where I, I think they're really making a, a big push, which I frankly haven't seen in the history world uh, in, within the faith in, since I've been around. I mean, they certainly did, didn't do this type of press coverage for uh, the Joseph Papers Project. Yeah. Do, do you think this whole thing is sort of an outgrowth of the reasons for the essays in the first place also, and the fact that there, there's, there's this information's out there so readily available on the Internet, they would rather the members read it in so-called friendly hands and with a friendly handling or at least a sympathetic handling? Absolutely. I, I, I think it's definitely a both a response to current conditions in the church as well as a reflection of where we are as a society, recognizing that the cat's out of the bad bag. We have to deal with that. So rather than playing from behind and responding to criticisms, it's much uh, more positive to actually present a narrative and provide a foundation and inoculate saints from future problems and faith crises and confrontations. Given, given that, what do you think professional historians will think of saints? Um, 
I don't think professional historians are going to find much new in these volumes, especially those who have read basic uh, uh, overviews of, of, of the church. I mean, this I should make a caveat and say this might be different in later volumes with the international histories because there haven't been a lot of international histories of the church written, and the authors are working with sources that most historians don't have. But in this volume, the, the early history, I imagine most historians are going to uh, just find basic material. And those who are used to more rigorous and substantial uh, meaty work are probably going to come away a bit with, wait, that's it? Um, and I think that's more of a reflection of the different approaches that an academic historian might have and the approach that this that this volume seeks to accomplish. Uh, what do you think the tr the volume handles well? What do the authors do well? I in in my story today, you mentioned the Smith family. Say more about that. Yeah. So. I was very impressed with, as part of, as I mentioned before, this gripping narrative. There, you're really engrossed in this story. This is a book that's really easy to pick up and read through because you get, uh, you you get attached to the characters, you get a sense of the drama, um, and you get a sense of character development, which is another key theme of the book. And I use the example of the of the Smith family. That the Smith family is, you know, the first circle of believers. Alvin Smith, Joseph Smith's older brother, um, he was the person who supported Joseph more than anyone else. And when he died due to a sickness, it was a blow on the family and they couldn't talk about the gold plates for a couple of years. And, and it talks about Joseph Smith Sr. being uh, consecutively hopeful and disappointed and supportive of Joseph Smith. And I, and I think that the, the, the book, because they chose this gripping narrative uh, approach, you really, these historical figures really come alive. And I think that's really helpful for the types of, of readers that the authors are seeking to uh, reach. I was surprised, and and I guess I knew this, but I, I was reminded that Lucy Smith, Joseph Smith's mother, had struggled her whole life to find, quote, the true church of Jesus Christ. And that was something that that predates Joseph himself. Some, I think modern Mormons think, oh, that that was just Joseph. He saw the different churches, and he, he wanted to know which church was true. But in fact, that was a quest of Joseph's mother for a long, long time. I thought that was pretty interesting that they would include that in this volume. Right. And building off that, the volume does a great job of bringing the perspective of women into play. Both Lucy Mack Smith, Mary Whitmer, the mother of the Whitmer brothers who helped with the, the final couple of years before the church was officially organized. I think that's a, a monumental achievement. And I think it is due to the fact that this volume has a lot of women writers on it, which is mm -hmm. something that had not been the case with official history of the church. So for instance, back in the 1970s, when Leonard Arrington, the church historian, envisioned a 13 volume series of church history that was going to be published for the Church of Sesquicentennial in, in 1980, um, of those 13 volumes, which was supposed to cover both chronological periods and themes, not a single one was going to be either written about women or by a woman. Um, and so I think that shows how far we've come since then to where this new Saints volume, some of the key writers of this volume were women, and some of the key characters who framed the story were women, which is, I, I think is something to be celebrated. And, and you'd have to say that if you read Mormon history, women were players all the time in it. 
and also many of the sources are women's journals and diaries and correspondence. You, you can't tell the story of Mormonism without women, although many have tried. <laughs> Absolutely. Many, many have tried. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I think, as you mentioned, it's key. We've only known half the story because usually whenever you write Mormon history, there's Mormon history and then there's Mormon women's history, kind of ghettoized off to the side. It's not uh, integrated. Whereas what I think this volume shows is women were driving the story. Women were key parts. It wasn't that Joseph Smith and the men were doing one thing and they carved out this little space where the women can do their business. Women were asking the questions. They were doing the actions. They were performing the work. And, and you can't understand the broader story without their contributions. So what do you think they don't do so well? The book doesn't do so well. <sighs> So this is where I get a bit squeamish because I, I don't envy the, the work that these authors had to do. I'm not able to write it in a way that would reach the type of audience they have, even though heaven knows I, I try. But I do think their choice to um, have such a narrative-driven, easy, concise history does have consequences that we have to note. Um, most importantly, um, because it's so straightforward, there's not much room for what I call interpretive humility, meaning that we don't know what happened at a lot of these events. We don't know uh, that Lucy Mack Smith was as much of a seeker as she said 20 years after the fact. So to use it as an example, these first few chapters draw heavily heavily, heavily from Lucy Mack Smith's history that she wrote in 1845, 1846, um, you know, 30 years after some of the events that she dictates. If you read the, the, the saint's narrative itself, you have direct quotations taken from that and, and that this is how conversations took place as if this book is solid gold. Well, historians aren't fully convinced that the book is as uh, as solid as we'd like to think. And they acknowledge this in the topics essay, but not in the narrative itself. And I would imagine that a vast majority of people are gonna be reading the narrative without the gospel topics. As another example of this, um, in 1826, Joseph Smith is, is, uh, is brought to trial uh, by the son of by the sons of an old man who had hired Joseph Smith to do some treasure digging, they claimed that Joseph Smith was defrauding uh, their father by claiming that he could find treasure through his seer stone. Historians aren't convinced what happened in this trial, whether it was a verdict, whether it was a guilty or an innocent verdict. Um, this just kind of shows the contingencies of history. That page of the record is lost, and we don't know what happened. But if you read the narrative. It specifically says Joseph Smith was found innocent. Now, there is some evidence to believe that, and it's probably a, 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 you can make a strong case that that, was a, that, that that actually happened, but we don't know for sure. Um, so all of this is to say that I worry that the way they craft the narrative here might perpetuate problems when some readers encount this story and then later on learn, oh, this might not be as rock solid as we thought. I would rather... Uh, the narrative insert some uh, basic, and this isn't big changes, insert words like likely or maybe, or this may have happened as a result, uh, which kind of leaves some wiggle room. But then I'm a historical nerd who likes wiggle room and, and the type of powerful, faithful, devote history that they're going for just doesn't have much room for that. 
that that's almost like we as journalists do sometimes, of course, especially in new journalism format, where you you you, you like to use the fudge words we call them of May or things like that. It seems like they could have done that without really dragging down the narrative much. I that's what I think, but then mm-hmm. again, I'm not the 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 expert fiction writers that they brought in to smooth out the prose. So Plus they you also know, had, on this, they had to get it approved. Committees to go through. <laughs> yes, right, yeah. right. So let me ask you about the future volumes a little bit that's going to take it up to uh, essentially today. What do you look forward to in, in, in those volumes? And, and obviously they're, we have no idea if they're even done, and I'm sure they're working on them. What, what parts should maybe listeners be looking for? Oh, let's see how they handle, say, Mountain Meadows or something like that. Yeah, well, I am definitely interested on Mountain Meadows. Uh, that uh, I'm, I'm interested in how they deal with Utah polygamy. Um, I'm interested in how they deal with things like uh, politics in the 20th century and how the LDS Church becomes aligned with the American uh, right. But on the flip side of that, I'm also interested on how American these narratives are going to be. Because very quickly, once we leave out of the 1844, once we leave 1846 behind, which is the end date of this first saints volume, the church becomes quite global. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering how much are, are these future volumes going to maybe follow the same pattern of the first volume and focus on the president of the church at the time and seeing things through their eyes, or how much are they going to focus on, you know, the average Latter-day Saints? Once you get to the fourth volume, and I don't know what the chronolo- chronological boundaries are going to be for these later volumes, but once you're dealing with, say, the second half of the 20th century, you have millions of possible people you can look at. How are they going to balance all these different perspectives? And so one final thing that, that, I, that I wonder about with these future volumes, how are they going to incorporate the diversity of the Mormon experience? How are, much are they going to argue that there is not one Mormon way of life, but there are multiple? How much are they going to acknowledge uh, racial and cultural differences and experiences? And how much are they going to try to argue that there is, there's this one dominant experience that kind of shapes Mormon history? Those are the type of questions that, I, that I'll have in mind as, as I eagerly await the future volumes. It'll be interesting to see, I guess, who the contributors are for those later ones are. If they draw from the international membership, of course, that might tell a lot as to how the story's going to go, huh? Right. Absolutely. What are your hopes for the book? My hopes is that the average Latter-day Saints that I witness in the pews next to me on Sundays might read them and stop uh, sharing some of the common folklore that I often hear during Sunday school lessons. My hope is that when we gather for our Sunday school classes or for our third hour classes, that we might be able to assign the assigned chapters from these volumes and discuss uh, these historical matters and develop more of a historical consciousness. My hope is that seminary and institute uh, 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 students will be exposed to these histories and so they won't be surprised when they encounter histories online. Um, uh, my hope is that we'll be able to hear from the pulpit, sacrament meeting talks that draw from these historical sources because I, I, historical narratives, because I think there's such a rich history that is untapped in common LDS discourse that, that saints can only help in and overcoming. Do you have any fears about this book or these volumes? Uh, my fear is that some might feel that these are the stories and this is as far as we're going to go in addressing our um, historical issues that kind of we come thus far and no farther 
that historical works that may challenge some of this narrative are now seen as unfaithful and wrong. And so I, I hope that these books serve more as a uh, launching pad for more historical discussions rather than the measuring rod against which all histories need to be uh, considered. Benjamin Park, thank you so much for your insights on this. Oh, it's my pleasure. And Peggy, thanks again for your coverage. Always enjoy it. We also thank our producer, Sarah Weber. We remind our listeners that in addition to our podcast, you can receive our free weekly newsletter. Just go to sltrip.com to sign up, and we'll talk again next time on Mormon Land.